Welcome to episode 26 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast, which, as soon as the telephone rings, will, I'm sure, be snapped up by the executives at Fox News and thrust into the daily 8 p.m. spot that has been vacated by Tucker Carlson. That's vacated in the sense that the English throne was vacated when Parliament cut off Charles I's head. I haven't actually got a call from Fox yet, but I've been having some issues with my phone sending people straight to voicemail, so that's almost certainly why. Hopefully I'll have some news by next week's episode. Well, the only thing I can see complicating that is if MSNBC starts a bidding war. Now, I know they're big fans of mine over there, but thus far, the sticking point has been that they weren't able to match the bars of gold that I insist Rich Lowry personally delivers to my house each time I publish a new show. But I've asked Joy Reid if she'll put a good word in for me, and I think that'll probably break the jam. Now, before I do a few Q&A questions, I want to share with you a note that someone sent me, which I'll read verbatim except for the name. Hello, it starts. I'm enjoying your podcast. Thank you. In case you find anyone telling you that they have trouble getting Alexa, that's Amazon Alexa, to play them, I have found the solution. I had it working before but forgot the answer. So I recently spent an extremely frustrating 10 minutes yelling at Alexa, play the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. I got podcasts from C.W., whatever that is. I got a Charles podcast. Charlie Kirk, K-I-R-K, even popped up in there somewhere. Then I finally remembered how I'd gotten Alexa to play it in the first place. Play the Charles C.W. Cookie podcast, I commanded. Alexa dutifully responded, playing the Charles C.W. Cook, pronounced correctly, podcast, and did so. Evidently, she required that E sound at the end to find it properly. I pass this on for whatever good it may do your listeners. Well, thank you. So there you have it. And thank you to Edgar Johnson of 14 Acacia Avenue, Portland, Oregon, 19546. That's a joke, in case you're wondering. It's 15 Acacia Avenue, Portland, Oregon, 19546. Email me for his social security number. Question one. My question deals with John Stewart's recent interview of an Oklahoma state senator on the issue of gun control and registration. As often happens... He, that's John Stewart, made the interviewee look pretty bad. Stewart questioned why it's okay to infringe on a right when it comes to requiring voters to register, but it isn't okay to infringe on a right when it comes to requiring gun owners to register. I'm curious, how would you answer that question? Well, 
I would answer that question by noting that those two things are not, in fact, equivalent. It's not infringing on a right to ask voters to register. That's an unavoidable part of the voting process. How else would you run the system? Voting is a government function, not a private function. And as such, even if you wanted to, you can't extricate it from government involvement. You could have a system of firearms, ownership, transfer, carry, and so forth that was completely divorced from the government. All you have to do to achieve that is to pass no laws at all. But you can't have a voting system that is divorced from the government. During an election, the government is literally registering your votes. That's what an election is. And obviously, if it's going to do that, then it's going to need to ensure that those whose votes it's registering are in compliance with the rules that it has set. Whether those rules are that voters need to live in the state, or be a citizen, or be older than 18, or not be a convicted felon, or, most important, that they don't vote twice. I can't imagine what a voting system that didn't have voter registration would look like. And I assume that John Stewart didn't provide an example of one or explain how registering voters represented a restriction on the right to vote. Now, guns don't work like that. Certainly, I understand the case for laws governing firearms ownership. And despite the frequent claims to the contrary, we have a lot of them. But they aren't intrinsic to the process of owning a firearm. I could quite easily buy a gun from a neighbor or a wholesaler or a manufacturer or a foreign company without the government being involved in that process at all. At root, that transaction is no different than buying a toaster. What Stuart means, I imagine, is that he thinks we ought to have more regulations on guns, and that's fine. A lot of people think that. I used to think that, too. But unlike with voting, those regulations are not necessary to the process per se. And if we did impose them, it would indeed make it more difficult to exercise the right to keep and bear arms, which, of course, would be the purpose of passing them in the first place. If you'll forgive me a brief but relevant digression, I also note that there are two reasons that we don't have many gun registries in this country. The first is that Second Amendment advocates oppose them on the grounds that they do not wish the government to have a list of who owns what, both because they don't want the government to possess that information and because they don't want that information collected in a format in which it might leak or be leaked to criminals or political activists, which has happened, and in fact happened recently in California. The second is that gun registries don't work. Now, I suspect that what Stuart was really complaining about in that segment, whether he knew it or not, was not the lack of gun registries, but the lack of background checks on private intrastate sales in some states. And I suspect that because leaving aside the question of rights and leaving aside the Second Amendment argument, 
almost all of America's gun registries have been voluntarily abandoned. Why? Because they're expensive, and they're difficult to maintain, and they don't do anything useful. Canada used to have a long gun registry. It lasted from 2003 to 2012. It was predicted to cost $2 million per year. It ended up costing $2.7 billion. And it wasn't used to help solve a single homicide case during that period. New Zealand abandoned its registry for the same reason. Now, I know on law and order, the police are always looking up the gun. But in the real world, that doesn't happen. Hawaii, Washington, D.C., Chicago, they've all had gun registries at various points. And none of them could ever point to any crimes that were solved or aided by the records that they kept. And that's before we get to the Constitution. Not the Second Amendment, but the Fifth. Under a Supreme Court case from 1968, Haynes v. United States, it was decided 7-1, to one, the court ruled that convicted felons enjoy a constitutional right not to register a gun on the grounds that for them to register a gun knowing that they weren't allowed to would represent self-incrimination, which is illegal under the Fifth Amendment. Look it up. Under Haynes, it is illegal for the states to prosecute criminals who refuse to register guns, but it's legal for them to prosecute non-criminals who refuse to register guns, which in concert with the fact that Gun registries don't help solve crimes, makes them entirely pointless, doesn't it? Now, I mention all this because it relates neatly to the original question, which was why it's okay to infringe on a right when it comes to requiring voters to register, but it isn't okay to infringe on a right when it comes to requiring gun owners to register. In my view, infringements on rights become morally worse when they're pointless. It's not an infringement on the right to vote to make people register because the government cannot run a voting system without that registration process. It is an infringement on the right to keep and bear arms to make people register their guns because there's no benefit to the practice while there are obvious and serious downsides. Question as a well-known roller coaster aficionado, what four coasters would be on your Mount Rushmore? I get so many Mount Rushmore questions on this podcast and in my newsletter that I suspect eventually I'll be able to construct a Mount Rushmore of my Mount Rushmore questions and watch as the show recurses infinitely and is swallowed whole by the universe. But before then, I shall give you my four coasters. Number one, Boulder Dash at Lake Compounds in Connecticut. So this is a wooden roller coaster built in the year 2000 by a company called Custom Coasters International, which had an incredible 11-year run, mostly during the 1990s. This company built Ghost Rider at Knott's Berry Farm in California. 
Tonnerre de Zeus at Parc Asterix, which is in France. It built The Raven and The Legend at Holiday World in Indiana. It built Shivering Timbers in Michigan, Tremors at Silverwood, many others. And then it disappeared as quickly as it had shown up. I believe it went bankrupt. But I think Balderdash is its best work. It still shows up in the top four every year in the Golden Ticket Awards. It has everything that enthusiasts love about CCI's work. But on top of that, it's built into the side of a mountain. And that has the dual effect of creating a truly unusual layout. And because of the trees and the boulders that surround the track, making it pretty much impossible for the rider to see what's going to happen next. It's also very long. It's the longest wooden roller coaster on the East Coast. It's a masterpiece. It is the best example of the renaissance in wooden roller coasters of the 1990s and beyond. And I shall place it onto Mount Rushmore. Number two, Nemesis at Alton Towers in England. So this is a Berliger and Mabillard inverted roller coaster, which means that the track is above your head and you sit in ski lift style seats with your legs hanging down. Other models of this type you might recognize are Batman the Ride at many Six Flags parks around the United States, Montu at Busch Gardens Tampa, Alpengeist at Busch Gardens Williamsburg, Raptor at Cedar Point, and so on. Nemesis is not the biggest inverted roller coaster BM built by any means, but it is probably the most intense. And oddly enough, this is in part because of the limitations that were imposed by the local planning restrictions. So in America, in most cases, we have so much space that we just build roller coasters wherever we want, however high we want, and then we go on our merry way. In England, in many places, we can't do that. So Nemesis was built into a massive hole in the ground that was dug for the purpose. It's not particularly tall, it's not particularly long, but the pacing, which is my main interest when riding roller coasters, is absolutely perfect. The first helix after the strange little drop into the corkscrew is just magnificent. And from that moment, when the train begins really to accelerate, it never lets up. Nemesis was also the first upside-down roller coaster I went on as a kid. I waited four hours for it in the cold. So there's some nostalgia there, too, of course. Number three, Space Mountain, Walt Disney World. So this is a small ride relative to new roller coasters. It's also a surprisingly slow ride. It feels fast in the dark, but it's 28 miles an hour, I think. And it's dated in many ways, but it's also a classic. It's an icon. It's a rite of passage, really. Is there anyone in the world who doesn't like this ride? This was the first roller coaster I ever went on. Now, I was very tall as a kid, but even so, I wouldn't have been able to go on it at three years old now 
because the trains are different now than they were back in 1988. Between 1975 and 1989, each seat in Space Mountain's trains held two people, not one. And those two people sat in front of one another. Effectively, the second rider was sitting on the lap of the person behind them. So I did just that. I went on with my dad, and I was hooked. I was transfixed. I dreamed about riding Space Mountain for years after that. It was a formative experience. And I think, at least I hope, that's how everyone feels. Finally, number four... I'll take Millennium Force at Cedar Point in Sandusky, Ohio. This is my second favorite roller coaster in the world, after Fury 325 at Carowinds. But it and not Fury 325 has to go on if we're doing Mount Rushmore, because Millennium Force set the standard. Millennium Force was the first roller coaster to hit 300 feet, it was the first of its type as opposed to, say, a dive machine, to have a drop at 80 degrees. It was the first complete circuit roller coaster to hit 90 miles per hour. It was the first roller coaster with magnetic brakes, which allows it to stop really quickly. Great for the pacing. It goes from 65 miles per hour to zero in six seconds. And it's perfect. It's a perfect ride. There's not a dull moment. It finishes as relentlessly as it starts. The trains are open and comfortable. The setting is sublime. That's another thing it has over Fury 325. It's right there on the water on Lake Erie, so the views are spectacular. And it's also one of the few roller coasters that I've been on while semi-drunk. So that helps. Millennium Force's designer, Werner Stengel, thinks that it was his best work. And it probably is. Like Boulder Dash, it's always in the top three or four in the rankings. It's often still at number one. It was a watershed moment when it was built. On it goes. Before I get to my guest today, as listeners of this show, I want to tell you all about a new podcast from our friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. The podcast is called Free the Economy. And it's about how we can all be happier, healthier, and wealthier in a world with less government control. From legalizing the gig economy to the perils of ESG, and what true diversity in the workplace looks like each week, CEI's Free the Economy podcast brings you up to speed on news you can use and welcomes experts in their field to have honest and candid conversations about how these policies and more shape our economy and our society. America has the greatest economy in the world, but it could be even stronger if we embraced a free society where innovation and entrepreneurship were encouraged and not shackled with bureaucratic controls. So check out Free the Economy wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can visit cei.org. Free the economy and listen there. My guest today is Sunny Bunch, the culture editor at The Bulwark and the host of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood and Across the Movie Isle podcasts. 
available where good podcasts are found. Now, Sonny's going to tell me about movies. Sonny, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Uh, thank you for having me on, Charles. I really appreciate it. So, as I've said to you offline, I am a movie idiot. I know nothing about movies. I see nothing when I watch movies. I'm good with music. You play me a song. I can play it back to you on the piano pretty much straight away. I can hear the chords. I can hear the structure. I can tell you why it works or why it doesn't. I can guess where it was recorded and how. Subconsciously, my mind will supply me with a list of all the similar songs that have ever been released. I see that the chorus is like this song and the verse is like that song and the middle eight reminds me of whatever. I'm, I'm good at that. But with movies, I have anti-talent. It's not just that I often struggle to follow plots, although I do. My wife works out within 10 minutes in a murder mystery who the murderer is. I sometimes don't understand who did it after it's been revealed. <laughs> it's that I don't have the framework or the vocabulary to discuss movies intelligently. And recently a friend of mine suggested I watch the movie Arrival which I believe was directed by Denis Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. That's, I, I, liked, I like to go the full French on that one. Denis Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. Well, I did. I enjoyed it. But afterwards, he asked me about the imagery and the allegories and the structure. And he honestly, he might as well have been speaking Greek. Now, you see this stuff too. And I know this because I read you. You use phrases such as the third act. <laughs> You have comprehensible, interesting opinions on movies that would never occur to me. So my first question before we get on to how and why is, how did you develop that ability? Is it innate? Do you read books about it? Do you talk to other people about it? Is it practice? How do you get to be good at movie watching and reviewing? Well, I mean, I think those are two different things, right? I think you can be good at watching movies uh, or enjoy watching movies uh, and not be good at writing about movies or thinking about movies. I think they're, I think that's most people, actually. I think that most people are pretty good at, you know, just sitting down and, and watching a picture, but not necessarily describing why it works or why it doesn't work. How did I get this way? I mean, it, it's, it is like with any other writing discipline, right? You You do it enough and you get better at it. We have a a mutual friend, I think, Matthew Cottonetti. Um, and the the one advice Matt always gives folks, young young people who want to be writers, is write less and read more. Read more, and you will become a better writer. And that is 100% true for writing about movies. I mean, I have an entire... If you could see me on camera right now, you would be, see behind me. I have an entire wall of books that's just movie books. It's uh, collections of criticism, collected screenplays, histories of film, that sort of thing. And one of the reasons I am able to write competently about movies is because I've read a great, great deal about them and have kind of internalized a lot of the the language there. But I'm, I'm interested. I, so the, the way you talk about music is fascinating to me because I'm, I'm the exact opposite of you. I, I can listen to a song and I can enjoy a song. I could even, I used to drum a little bit and I can, I could, you know, tap out a basic time or a beat for the drum part of, of a pop song, but that's about it. That's the absolute extent of my musical ability. I cannot, I am totally tone deaf. I cannot pick out chords. This is why I played the drums is because I could not 
I could not actually play a guitar chord to save my life. Um, They all sound the same to me. I joke about this sometimes, but it's absolutely true. The reason I could never get into American Idol is because I, I would get very frustrated and angry because all of the acts sounded the same. I mean, set aside like the joke acts like the William Hungs, right, who were obviously terrible, but like the good singers and the bad singers all sounded exactly the same to me. And I couldn't tell what the difference was because I, I just am totally tone deaf on, on this stuff. Right. So there is something innate about this because I have, as I've written and before, synesthesia with music. Chords, notes, even whole songs appear like colors to me, and they're fairly well coded along musically logical lines. So, you know, if I hear It Won't Be Long by the Beatles, the first song on With the Beatles, my brain just tells me that's a C sharp minor. And there are colors associated with that, but that's not really the point. And maybe as a result of that weird misfiring in my brain, I've read a lot of books. How did you start this? I mean, you say, well, a lot of people are good at watching movies. But a lot of people who are good at watching movies don't have the array of books that you just described. They don't read criticism about movies. Why did you do that? Uh, well, I mean, it's, this goes back to, to co- humorously enough, the most valuable classes I took in college were like the four film history, film criticism classes that I kind of jammed into, you know, my my politics and history double major, right, and getting, getting around all the other requirements. The film history and criticism classes I took in college, like kind of set the stage for all of this, just like creating a base level of knowledge. My path to being a professional-ish film critic uh, has been long and circuitous, and it weirdly started when I got incredibly bored with political journalism in like 2005 or so. And I, I went to work at the Weekly Standard as the assistant editor for Books and Arts. And that was a fu- that was a great job. Loved working at the Weekly Standard. But the problem with that job is that it was the sort of thing that you took maybe 15 hours a week to actually do. Like the actual work component of that job took about 15 hours of mild copy editing and laying things out and, you know, distributing distributing galleys for people to read, et cetera, et cetera. I found myself with a lot of spare time. And I was like, well, what do I want to do with my spare time? And I tried to, I, I, I tried my hand at some political reporting, which I'd done, you know, for, for years before that. And I was just, I, it was not, it was not clicking for me. And I just started writing weekly movie reviews on, on the website of the weekly standard, um, the new DVD releases, that sort of thing. Cause at the time, John pod Horitz was the film critic at the weekly standard. I, w- I wouldn't endeavor to, to try to take J pods magazine spot, but the web was wide open. And so that's just kind of how it started. And again, like I look back at some of those early reviews and it, uh, you know, it's like looking back at anything that you write early in your career, Charles, I don't know if you do this, but I, I do it sometimes. And, uh, cause I'm trying to find something that I've written yeah. and I will cringe there's a there's a cringe uh, factor that always comes comes up, um, but you get better because you practice. Practice makes perfect, and uh, again, just like accumulating books and knowledge uh, that I had started picking up in college and had kept kept up with really helped with that. So let me ask you a difficult question: What makes a good movie? Unless you are a total relativist, which I don't think you are you presumably believe that there is such a thing, or at least that there is a hierarchy. People say, for example, that The Godfather is a great movie. Is it? And if it is, why? 
I mean, again, this is, yes, The Godfather is a great movie. The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2 are both great movies. The Godfather Part 3, good movie uh, that is now underrated, I think. What makes The Godfather good? Uh, so you can look at all the discrete parts of The Godfather individually and, and think about what makes them good, right? So it has, at a very basic level, it's a interesting story that works not only as a, the tale of a family and not just as a crime story or a crime drama, but also as an allegory for America, right? What is the opening line of that film? It's, I believe in America. And this is a much discussed point about, you know, the nature of America and what it means to, to be an American and crime in America, all that, whatever. So there's that level. You could also look at the performance level, right? I mean, it's one of these movies where you have, I don't know, a half dozen all-time great performances. Al Pacino is fantastic. James Caan is fantastic. Marlon Brando, of course, comes all the way back from, you know, uh, from years of obscurity is the wrong word, but he had he had fallen from grace for sure uh, and comes back and just delivers this command performance. Or John Cazale. I mean, like you could, there's, there's so many great individual performances that ask, that this then asks the second question, well, what is a great performance? And writing about performances has always been one of the things I'm worst at. I'm not the person to talk to about performances. Um, I'm just, I'm very, I'm very bad at it. But Is that because you never acted yourself or you don't resonate at that level? Part of it is I feel uncomfortable writing about performances and appearances of actors because that stuff can be so, it's, it's hard not to do it without it sounding very personal. One of my favorite film writers uh, is a guy named David Thompson, and he has a book. He had a his most recent book was about writing about acting, and I really enjoyed reading that. But he writes about the actual physical appearance of actors in ways that make me uncomfortable to write about, just because it feels so personal and and I don't like doing it. That said, I it, I think that is a key part of writing about performance, and I think that there is a movement afoot in in the world of writing about film to kind of neuter that sort of writing that doesn't really make any sense. I think I, I don't think you can write about movie stars without talking about how, frankly, attractive they are and how much we enjoy looking at them and all that sort of stuff. But like, how do you write about a good performance? I mean, I, I don't it's kind of like pornography, right? You know, it when you see it, there are different ways to be good. And there are different ways to be bad. And trying to figure out what is good and what is bad is oftentimes just a matter of taste. I think I find this easier when I can compare the same play across different actors. I watched the 1953 production of Julius Caesar about a month ago. And Marlon Brando as Mark Antony was so good <laughs> that I watched the pivotal scene in the play three times in a row. But I have seen other people play the part. I've probably seen it 50 times. This stood out to me. What I struggle with, I suppose, is going to the movie theater and you see a movie that has only been made once and will only ever be made once. And then I read people saying, this was a good performance, this was a bad performance. And I think I just didn't notice this, this at all. Part of it is ease with the camera, if that makes sense. Sure. Part of it, sometimes, sometimes folks, uh, you, you see them on camera and they are clearly uncomfortable or the camera, you know, there's a phrase, the camera doesn't love him. And I think that's a very... It's one of these phrases that doesn't really make any sense, but also perfectly describes how a person can be bad on film if they just seem uncomfortable or if it always looks like they're at the wrong angle or if, if there is a, a wooden delivery 
to their dialogue. You know, it just it, it's kind of a culmination of things. And again, it, performance is probably the thing that is most attuned to individual tastes and what people are looking for in a film. You know, there there are other things that you can look at that are a little more objective, things like how to frame a shot, right? Or pacing, how a film rolls along. The lighting. Lighting is a is a very key thing. And once you start picking up on how lighting works in different scenes, you're like, oh, okay, I see what they're doing here. I like this. I don't like this. This works to convey a certain emotion. I mean, that is that's the real goal of the film critic is to use to help people understand why they like or don't like what they see in a movie. And the only way to do that is through the filmmaking techniques that are being deployed. Again, this is one reason why it's really important to read. You got to you got to read about the technology of film and how editing works and how sound design works and how a camera actually physically operates, how it, you know, we are living through a, a revolution right now in terms of that that specific thing cameras, right? So there's this great book by uh, the director Sidney Lumet about making making a film. He goes step by step through the process of making a film. And one of the chapters in this book, uh, Making Movies, is an absolute first class primer in terms of helping people understand how a movie gets made just from start to finish. And one of the chapters in the book is about how cameras work, how the actual lens on a camera works, how light comes into it and you know how how focal depth works and that sort of thing. And understanding what how a camera actually physically works helps you understand what you're seeing on the screen. And if you understand what you're seeing on the screen, you can better describe it. Now, like I said, we're living through kind of a a revolution in how that part of filmmaking actually works. We're shifting almost entirely to digital uh, rather than film cameras, um, which changes how light is captured and how light is delivered to audiences, which in turn changes the entire look of a film. There's, uh, you know, movies have always or at least color movies have always had this process of color timing that takes place after the after the fact but it used to be a little more limited than it is now the the way the things you can do with computers to change the tint or the exposure or the contrast uh, just change how a movie actually looks is kind of amazing but also like it just changes it just changes how the film itself so looks on this why is so much tv and this is true of some movies as well so dark now game of thrones towards the end got so dark physically dark on the screen there was one episode and i have a fairly nice tv there was one episode it was actually quite hard to see what was going on yeah yeah that uh well so the answer to this question is probably going to be very unsatisfying and it is that when the people who are making these shows and these movies watch them they are watching them on the highest caliber possible viewing instruments in absolute optimal lighting conditions. And if your TV set is not attuned directly to what they are doing in their screening room, you're going to get a different look. So I I have an extremely nice TV as well. I have like a, a, a very nice OLED, you know, the blackest black levels. And I my problem is if I if I have any light elsewhere in the house, it will mess up some of these very dark scenes, right? So the short answer here is they are watching in a much more controlled way than you are. I mean, the bigger problem from that my point of view... That seems to me like incompetence, though, Sonny, because in music, we have the same issue. When you're in a recording studio, everything, of course, sounds extraordinary, and you have this high-end equipment, everything is 
running about as well as it possibly could. But then they have a process called mastering, and mastering is the means by which you put the finished track into whatever format it's going to end up in. So, you know, historically that would be vinyl, then it moved to tape, then CD and so on. But part of mastering is playing the song back on as many different sorts of speakers as you have, trying to work out which is the closest representation of what the average person will listen to, and then making sure that that mix sounds good so that you don't get in a car and say, well, I wish I was sitting in Abbey Road. This would probably sound really good then. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, look, I, I, I remember that Game of Thrones episode. The, uh, the, you're talking about the final assault from the, the White Walkers, right? Yes. Yeah, and that, was, that, was a, it was a, that was a tough episode. I remember watching it and thinking, boy, I, am, I, am I watching this wrong? Uh, is is there something wrong with the feed? It was just it was just too dark, and I I agree that that is a, there is a mild uh, incompetence there. All right, well that's a good segue into another question I have. I hear people increasingly saying that the Oscars is out of touch. That there was a point in American history not too long ago, certainly this was true in the 1990s, at which there was not a large gap between the movies that you would see featured at the Oscars and the movies that people actually watched and enjoyed. And that now that gap is enormous, that there are all sorts of films that do well at the Oscars, but that people don't actually like or watch, and that this is making the Oscars and more generally movie making less relevant than it once was. What do you think of that? Well, the, you're, these are, again, these are kind of two separate questions here. So, so the first question is, what is the actual purpose of the Oscars? The, there, there's, I think there's an actual debate to be had that people kind of want to avoid about the Oscars, which is, what is the purpose of the Oscars? I, I think the Oscars is best understood as a Hollywood trade show in which the studios say to the world, these are the things we make. And this is, this is what we value. And these are, these are what is good. And this is why I argued that Top Gun Maverick should probably win Best Picture if the if the Oscars wants to maintain its relevance because um, Top Gun Maverick was a was a very good to great movie. It was beloved by critics, beloved by audiences. And it showed off all the things that Hollywood does better than anybody else can in the world. And as a as a bonus, it was an enormously popular at the box huge box office hit. the The second conception of the Oscars is the Oscars should be dedicated solely to rewarding the highest artistic achievement in film. And this gets into a lot of different questions about well, what is what does that actually mean? Is, you know, is a, what is a good movie? What is a bad movie? Uh, and uh, again, that's that's a thing you can debate. But the problem is that to answer your specific point about why audience and Oscar tastes have kind of diverged a bit over the years, Part of the problem is that the market for the mid-budget to big-budget prestige picture has kind of dried up, right? So, like, a movie like Braveheart hit with audiences, hit at the Oscars, everybody, it's both critical critical and commercial success, wins Best Picture, uh, I think Mel Gibson wins Best Director, right? It's, it is a, it's a, that's the sort of movie that people are like, well, why can't you reward movies like that? And the problem is you don't get a lot of movies like that made anymore. And when they do get made, audiences don't show up for them. The best, the best recent comp for a movie like Braveheart is probably The Last Duel. 
The Last Duel, uh, starring Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, directed by Ridley Scott. Big prestige type picture. Uh, it has, you know, it has not, it was not only a very good movie with a p- fairly clever screenplay structure that's kind of hopping back and forth through time and and uh, doing a kind of Rashomon effect with the, the screenplay. That movie flamed out spectacularly at the box office, right? It cost $100 million to make. It grossed something like, I don't know, $15, 20000000 million uh, at the domestic box office, maybe less. And the reason the reason it didn't make money is because people aren't going to see movies like that. And if you don't go to see movies like that, movies like that don't get made as much. And when they do get made, they get dumped to streaming. And people, I think, still rightly look at streaming as sort of a uh, a, a modern made for TV system. Why and, rightly? Are they less expensive? Is that where the studios no, put not the? Nec- bad not movies? necessarily. Not they aren't necessarily less expensive. I mean, you you definitely see uh, you definitely see Netflix pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into some of these movies. But the problem, I, I I look, I'm a, I'm a theater chauvinist in the sense that I think if you don't see a movie in theaters, it is you're watching TV. Um, and if you're watching TV, you're you if you're watching a Netflix original, Netflix has different goals and desires than pure artistry one of them is they want to keep you in front of the screen as long as possible which leads to a lot of what i describe as netflix bloat everything that is on netflix is at least 20 percent longer than it needs to be um, and that's because they don't value uh getting people in and out like they should again i'm just a theater chauvinist i believe that if you watch them if you watch something on tv you're watching a made for tv movie and if you watch something in a theater you're watching a you're watching a film that's a, there's a difference. All right, let's talk about creativity then. You talked about the audience, which is the demand side, that they don't go and see movies such as The Last Jewel. What about the supply side? How worried are you that we're out of creativity as a culture? I wrote a newsletter at the weekend in which I mused aloud about how weird it is, or at least how weird I think it is, that my kids, who are five and seven, are obsessed with the same characters in the same movie franchises as I was when I was a kid in the late 80s and the 90s. They like Star Wars and Jurassic Park, and more lately, they like Super Mario and Sonic. And that's not because I'm some sort of hipster. It's because these are the franchises that they see on TV, at the movie theater, when they go to Disney World or Universal Studios, and they don't seem to have any modern equivalents of their own. It seems that almost every movie now, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, seems to be a sequel or a reboot or a spin-off of existing intellectual property, to the point at which I saw someone suggest recently that Universal was considering rebooting Back to the Future, which I don't understand because that exists. It's been done. It's really good. I love that movie. Why not come up with something new? The, the people behind Back to the Future didn't say, well, we'll remake movies from the 1950s. They came up with Back to the Future, which was novel and interesting and a great success. Let me be puckish here for a moment and bring it back to something you said earlier. How many times have you seen Julius Caesar? That's fair. That's fair. I'm not sure it's quite on the same level as Back to the Future. Well, no, 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 I, I know. I mean, it's the difference between Shakespeare and everything. But I, I mean, I, look, the, 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 the issue here, we, we could, there's a chicken and an egg problem. Is it the supply or the demand? 
Um, and I think the demand is very clearly for things that audiences recognize, right? So like, if you look at the box office just these last couple of weeks, um, two weeks ago, you had, uh, or well, I, I don't know when this, this will be going live, but you know, a, a couple of weeks ago, you had um, two horror movies, two horror-ish, horror-adjacent movies kind of come out on the same weekend. You had um, uh, the, the Pope's Exorcist starring Russell Crowe. And you had uh, Renfield starring Nicolas Cage, um, Renfield being Dracula's Man Friday, whatever. Those movies did not well. Those, movie, those movies grossed uh, under $10 million in their opening weekend. And Renfield was very expensive. I think it was like a $60 million movie. So, you know, you, you look at those, you look at those two originals and you're like, well, audiences not not super interested in horror right now maybe maybe they just don't want horror movies and then the weekend after that evil dead rise comes out now evil dead rise has the evil dead franchise tag on it right and it grossed uh, it grossed two and a half times what either of those movies made um it grossed more than both of those movies put together uh in its opening weekend audiences want franchises audiences want franchises they want things they recognize they want things they remember um and that is one one real problem at the box office right now is trying to figure out how to get those audiences back into theaters for original original programming i mean i so why why do you think that's changed i i I take your point about julius caesar but julius caesar was first performed in 1599 that's been around as a constant throughout the entire history of moving pictures in every country in the world and there is now this difference, you said audiences want franchises, that did not obtain in 1960, 1970, 1980. So what is it that's, that's changed that makes us less interested in seeing original ideas? Are we running out of ideas? Have we done it all? No, I, I mean, I don't I don't think you could say you're running out of ideas. I mean, what was the big what was the big success of last year? The big surprising success of last year, right, was everything everywhere all at once, which is a movie that did very, very well at the box office for its budget level. You know, it, it made 80, 80 million, something like that domestically, which is a very good number for the studio A24. It won it won Best Picture at the Oscars. And it is I there's the only way to describe that movie is sui generis. I mean, it is a it's a very it's a very strange uh, movie that nevertheless feels kind of familiar because it's it's dealing in a lot of action martial arts tropes but it's it, but it was great and original and interesting i mean the the real problem you you the real problem is structural right so a movie the the cost of a movie is not just the budget right the budget is a, is a part of the cost it's often a very large part of the cost it could be as much as you know 300 million dollars for the new fast and furious movie right but and also large, sometimes equally, or for a lower budget movie, a much larger cost is advertising. The the and advertising, you know, uh, what what they call PNA in the industry. If you want to release a movie on three thousand screens, you are spending at least forty to sixty million dollars advertising it. And if you're spending forty to sixty million dollars advertising a movie that costs, let's say, fifty million dollars. That means you need to make $200 million worldwide to recoup all your costs. Because remember, theaters keep half the ticket price. And that's for that's for a $50 million movie. $80 million movie, you're looking at $300 million worldwide. You know, a hundred million dollar movie, you're looking at four hundred million dollars worldwide. So like the the numbers, the numbers escalate very, very rapidly uh, when you are dealing with a a motion picture that is released in theaters. Now, I, I, like a studio looks at these numbers and says, well. We can make three $20 million movies that will end up probably costing us total about 
I don't know, $150 million to make, or we can make one $150 million movie that, uh, you know, will cost another $100 million to advertise, but could gross a billion dollars, right? That's basically the Super Mario Brothers model. Super Mario Brothers cost, I think, $100 million to make. They probably spend another $100 million advertising it. It's going to make a billion dollars at the box office before Japan and South Korea, where it will probably make another four or $500 million. The reason that they emphasize these brands that people know is because you don't have to spend as much advertising them. And if you do still spend a lot of money advertising them, it's a, something that people already know about, something that they're already aware of. And this is why, look, this is why, what is, what is the one modern franchise, right? It's probably Harry Potter. Harry Potter is probably the most recent new cultural product that has become a self-sustaining, self-generating franchise. And that's what, 25 years old now? Yes. So, I mean, I like, I, I, I think, I think I, there, there are big structural problems with, with the state of the industry that have to do with advertising and have to do with audience awareness and have to do with, frankly, audience unwillingness to show up for original stuff that makes it harder for some of the studios, especially the theatrical primary studios, the, the, the movie, the studios that are putting things in theaters. And this is one, this is one place where streamers actually have a mild advantage. Some, uh, you know, a company like Netflix can spend $20 million on a movie and they put it on the front page of Netflix. Yeah. And that is as good as, you know, a $50 million advertising campaign. The, the, the streamers are the one place where originals are, are working, but they are more focused on television, and rightly so, because look, again, streaming is TV. Streaming is TV, and the thing that they do best is long-form serial drama and short-form uh, serial comedy. Those are, those like, Hulu and Netflix are very good at making good TV shows. They are less good at making good movies. All right, last question. You mentioned that you're a... Uh... Theater chauvinist, I think that was your phrase. I have been told throughout my entire life, I'm 38, that movie theaters were going to die soon. In the 1990s, it was the extraordinary rise of home media, VHS and then DVDs. Then it was the advent of big 1080p and now 4K TVs with surround sound that you could get into your home. Then it was streaming. Then it was COVID. Is this true? Is it ever going to be true? Is there some truth to it? As a theater chauvinist, what hope do you have that the movie theater will remain a great destination for families and everyone else? I have decent hopes. It's funny, I never, I never thought there, there was a very brief moment. I'll, I'll take that back. There was a very brief moment in the depths of COVID uh, after Tenet kind of flamed out that I, I thought, okay, maybe theaters are kind of screwed. But if you look at the, if you look at the numbers, the, the box office will probably be about eighty five percent of what it was in uh, two thousand nineteen, which is the last pre COVID year, which was the highest grossing year of all time at the movie. So, like, I, you know, I think theaters will always. Or I don't. I mean, I, I want to say always, but for for a long time, theaters will continue to be there. the The issue is that look again, just looking at this from a purely financial point of view, and this is something Warner Brothers has realized uh, in the in the over the last year, few years here with the pandemic. It is impossible to make a movie that costs a certain amount of money and recoup that cost via streaming because people don't sign up for 
services based on a single movie. They just don't do it. But they will go to a theater for a single movie. So something like Dune. Let's let's think let's think about something like Dune. Dune Part Two is going to come out in November. That's a movie that cost I don't know 150 million dollars to make. They'll spend another 150 million dollars advertising it. So the they that that's a movie that needs to make half a billion dollars worldwide to even approach break even. You cannot you cannot make a movie like Dune and put it on HBO Max and have it ex- and expect to make your money back on it. It does not work. The finances of it do not work. And the only reason that Netflix can get away with this making a movie that costs two hundred million dollars like Red Notice is because they generate uh, some ungodly amount of money via subscriptions. Right? They generate something like eighteen billion dollars a year. You simply cannot have a thriving film ecosystem with big or medium budget movies uh, and expect those to pay for themselves via streaming. It does not work. The, the finances of it do not work on any level. So that that's one reason why I think that movie theaters will not go away is because studios can't let them go away. And audiences are still showing up for them. I mean, I you know, if you look at total number of ticket sales, they're down, but they're not down that much. Uh, you know, the, the, the average price of a movie ticket has basically kept is actually under the the increase with of inflation since I don't 1973 or something like that. It's cheaper in real dollars to see a movie today than it was in uh, in the early 1970s, which I think is people talk about how expensive the movies are, but going out to a movie is still cheaper than going out to dinner. It's cheaper than going to a concert. It's cheaper than going to an amusement park, right? I mean, a like lot, I, I, a lot cheaper than going to an amusement park. <laughs> exactly. I mean, like if you're if you're just like looking, if you if you are saying to yourself, "I want to get out of the house," what are we going to do this weekend? A movie theater is a always going to be there, and b it's always going to be your cheapest option, depending on what sort of snacks and drinks you want to buy at the at the concession stand. So I am I am not a theater skeptic, or I'm not skeptical that theaters will continue to exist. But I do I do wonder if we are headed towards uh, something that I think Steven Spielberg and George Lucas have kind of talked about a little bit, which is this idea of theaters as this kind of ultra premium, almost opera style place, right? Where you go and there are the, there will be a future in which all the screens that remain are IMAX style premium large format screens and you pay 30 bucks a ticket to watch something on, you know, opening weekend. And that is the the main driver of, the theatrical experience. I'm kind of curious to see if that comes to pass. I don't, I think we're still a long way off from that, but it's possible. All right. Sonny Bunch, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. And that's all we've got time for this week. Next week, I expect that I'll be doing this at 8 p.m. ET. In fact, I think I can hear the private jet outside now waiting to... Um, I'm being told that's just a leaf blower. Oh, well. Thank you to those of you who sent me questions. Thank you to Sunny Bunch for teaching me about movies. Thank you to you for listening. And we'll see you next week. Next week.